Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment, UK and Ireland, postgraduate conference. The conference, entitled Locating Eco-Criticism, Systems, Methodologies, Contexts, took place in UCD on the 30th and 31st of July, 2014. The conference was sponsored by the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment, UK and Ireland, UCD School of English, UCD Seed Funding, and the UCD Humanities Institute. This podcast features a keynote lecture by Professor Anne Millen of the University of Toronto, Scarborough. Her paper was entitled Poet as Genius of the Place, Reading Habitat and Bioregion in 18th Century Poetry. So uh, I, I want to address this conference theme of systems and eco-criticism through an examination of the challenges of reading, understanding, coming to terms with, and even writing and describing habitat and or bioregions in 18th century uh, British poetry. I'm primarily going to talk about English poetry today. I hope that we can come through discussions that arise from this paper to thinking more about systems and how this thinking systematically impacts upon green readings of literature. More specific to my work are the ways in which I've been thinking for the last few years about how poets generate place and how those places interact and intersect with real places and other voices, other representations of place. I've also been thinking about two specific classical concepts uh, and their importance for eco-criticism. So one is the genius loci, or the genius of the place, and the other is concordia discourse, which is a kind of harmonious discord in nature that generates delight. Furthermore, I think these concepts are relevant to how local poets become geniuses of the place. This leads to further thinking about poetic form and poetic conventions, uh, and for me especially neoclassical conventions, and how these forms and conventions contribute to particular evocations of habitat, bioregions, and place. So one thing I'm fascinated by, for example, is the heroic couplet. And it's a construction for, that for me, and I think also for someone like Alexander Pope, if I can boldly speak for him, uh, has an agency, uh, it, a kind of life force that's worthy of consideration. And I hope I can talk a little bit about that, but I don't really have time to talk too much about it today. So in the first part of my talk, I want to rehearse some of the work that I've been doing to catch us up and to catch myself up and to hopefully get hold of some of the loose ends I've generated. And then I'm going to move on from there. In some ways, I'd have to say that you've picked a kind of ideal speaker for your conference theme, someone fascinated by systems but not very adept at using them consistently, except perhaps creatively, or just to get me started, I make a list and then I lose the list, that kind of thing. (laughs) So I'm quite easily distracted. So while I try to keep this talk on time and adhere to a kind of academic logic, I'm also going to try to build in some chaos or at least some ideas at odds with conventional systems into the proceedings. 
And at some level, I'm taking my methodological cue from John Law by attempting to practically create this talk as what he calls a learning surface. And with that in mind, I hope to enact a, a kind of fractiverse, which Law describes as a world that is more than one and less than many, that is more than one, but is not just a bunch of separate and disconnected bits and pieces. So Law uses the fractiverse to acknowledge multiplicities through his deliberate use of pinboarding as a kind of experimental surface for juxtaposition. He calls it lumpy, heterogeneous, and not at all smooth. So as a system, it's ideally messy, non-hierarchical, non-narrative, and it works ideally to expose tensions that may not be immediately apparent. And that's the actual structural method that I use to construct this talk. Literally, I'm not here to prove anything. Indeed, I'm going to suggest at some level that it may be our literary critical urgency to read and recover and integrate poets into a larger vertical hierarchical literary world that prevents us from reading their work bioregionally. But I also think that by advocating for the experiential surface, I'm being true to the very critical discussions about systems that took place in the 18th century regarding, for example, natural history. And we don't hear about this variety very much because of the dominant discourse of taxonomy. I think it's important to remember that opinions varied on the efficacy of systems thinking applied to the study of the natural world. So uh, for one, ex I'll give you one example from my, my own work. Um, Ralph Bilby and Thomas Buick, for example, in their preface to the first volume of the History of the British Birds, call for judicious observers. So my question, I think, in part today is what does it actually mean to be a judicious observer? For Bilby and Buick, it includes a quality of attentiveness that brings the skills of the empirical observer into a kind of contrapuntal or juxtapositional relation with experientially based observations of nature. In Buick's case especially, those experiential based observations of nature are undoubtedly embodied experiences of nature, for we know that Buick walked a lot and we know that for a wood engraver, place is embodied in the hand, in the eye, in the breath of the graver, and alive also in the wood that he engraves and his intimate communication with the life of that wood. Perhaps ironically, though, as the preface to the history of the British birds tells us, Bilby and Buick's perceptive analysis and statement of purpose in the preface amounts to a kind of systems classification of systems but they prefer the messier taxonomists. They praise Gilbert White, whose History of Selborne had recently been published. They like Thomas Pennant, to whose elegant and useful labors the world is indebted for a friend of the most rational entertainment. And they even praise the famously unsystematic Comte de Buffon, who, despising the restraints with method which methodological arrangements generally impose, ranges at large. So perhaps 
ranging through this paper and my various topics as opposed to implementing a systems approach is apropos of both the literary historical period I'm discussing and the discussions of the systems we're engaging in here. There's also the example of George Crabbe, who I'll talk, I'll talk about in more detail later, but let me say a little bit about Crabbe right now because it actually seems relevant here. So in addition to being a well-known and well-connected 18th century poet or late early 19th century poet, Crabbe was a keen and serious natural historian of two places, his home place in Aldborough, uh, Suffolk, and his workplace in Leicestershire, where he served as a clergyman for many years. Crabbe expresses a palpable anxiety about getting it right in his letters to the printer John Nichols, who had enlisted Crabbe as a resident local expert on flora, fossils, and insects for Nichols' monumental 4,500-page History of the Antiquities of the County of Leicester, published in eight parts from 1795 to 1815. Crabbe was clearly a systems man, and I'll show you an example from his earlier uh, closely written 1767 bot botanical notebook uh, intended, according to his son, John Waldron Crabbe, merely to adjust his own memory in the study of natural history from books he had borrowed but could not at that time prudently allow himself to purchase. But actually what I think is really interesting about this photograph is the staining on the page from pressed plants and similar staining is found throughout the notebook. So what this speaks to is the messy experiential underpinnings of systems. Crabbe himself alludes to this paradox of system and experience as a problem of poetry and I'll come to discuss that later. I think we should also discuss the Bodleian stamp on this page. Um, it doesn't by any means uh, appear on every page of the notebook, but initially it made me so angry that I think it definitely needs to be included in the consideration of what I'll come to talk about in a few minutes as the interaction of this page. So I thought my response, at first I was like, oh, what did they stamp on that beautiful page? And it really upset me, and then I thought, no, I really have to, I really have to do something with this and think about it. But uh, let's go back to the plan for this talk. So if in the first part of the talk I'm going to create a critical backdrop for the talk, in the second part I'd like to highlight a couple of cases from two long poems from the 18th century. Um, in some ways these poems are proto-romantic, but formally they're still quite fixed in neoclassical poetic conventions. And the first poem is Anne Yearsley's Clifton Hill from 1786, and the other is George Crabbe's The Borough from 1810. In the borough, Crabbe poses a direct challenge to those poets who might aspire to render habitat in poetic form. And so I'll look at a specific passage from the borough to move into the final section of the talk. In that final section, I'll formulate some new research questions and directions, leave some loose ends, and I hope muse a little about the special value loose ends have for eco-criticism. 
And I'll get a little political too, as I've always felt very strongly about the idea that eco-criticism should dare to be different, and that it has an important role in critiquing systems thinking in our institutions and communities, especially obviously around environment and place. So I'll move now into this, the next section of the paper, which I'm calling rehearsals. Um, one of the most interesting papers, in my opinion, that I've written recently was not directly about 18th century British poetry. Rather, it was a reflection of an experience that I had in the 18th century poetry classroom with one of my students. I'll describe it to you briefly. The paper was called Breathing with Ian, Slow Learning, Contemplative Pedagogy and the Teachable Moment. It's largely about how I'm more consciously trying to live through the body and how this attentiveness to my spatial and embodied awareness impacts on my teaching. The particular case I describe in my paper had to do with the experience of an intuitive intervention in my student's affect during his class presentation by first monitoring and then interfering with the breathing in the classroom. I won't talk too much more at this point about this except to say that it was a really interesting experience for me and I think for the student as well and it really changed the entire atmosphere of the class. It's palpably what I would describe as a teachable moment in the truest sense of the word. Its relevance here is in its relationship to both systems and environment. The fact that it happened in a literature classroom where the poem under discussion was that most political poem, The Mask of Anarchy by Percy Bysshe Shelley, enhances the import or significance of the experience for me. And I think it's easier and less tangential to just think about what it is to listen mindfully, read and respond to someone's breathing. And is that not exactly the experience of what I'm calling poetrying? So, and I'm saying poetry rather than reading poetry or studying poetry or discussing poetry because I want to emphasize the moving flows of energies and the experiential nature of this practice and, and honor that. For at some level, that is what, is, what eco-criticism is for me, poetry as breathing, as em embodied. Poetry is breathing, breathing is a system, but the synergies generated by breathing extend beyond the body systems, beyond aerating the blood, beyond the exchange of gases, beyond the intersections it has with multiple life forms and, and other systems. This is important and it has been enhanced for me personally because I've recently begun studying Martha Graham technique in modern dance. Graham's technique is, uh, is based on breathing and it allows dancers to, in Graham's words, return to that most basic movement of breathing and reconnect with the rhythm of their most basic exchange with the outside world. Such breathings infuse Graham's choreography and breathe into the audience, just as I think breathing extends from, to, and back to poetry. Poetry also speaks to the challenge addressed by the fractiverse, its way of enabling juxtapositionary practices so that, as John Law says, we can begin to see how place can be done differently by different people and explore those tensions inherent to those different ways of doing place. 
So I want to go back and think again about those stains on the pages of George Crabbe's botanical notebook where the very properties of plant life permeate the pages. The plant's trace is simultaneous evidence of violence and preservation against and on the page. The trace is also a response to the life of the page, the plant pass of ink and paper, the eager desire to know the world through reading and writing, and so on. And what about that Bodleian Library stamp that I responded to viscerally as the truer stain interfering with what I perceived as the beauty and symmetry of the more purely stained page? As an unexamined juxtaposition, a learning surface, what does the Bodleian stain say? It's proprietary, it's also plant-based, it's physically imprinted, and therefore an embodiment of a movement and a sharp inhale when the stamp comes down. Is it just the fist stamping, or is it the, the wrist and the, the forearm? It's, it's a kind of breathing, a sharp inhale, a branding, and it's also round and it's blue. Or think about uh, something else. Let's think about the straining and not the staining, the reference to what is injurious in or to poetry that ends Anne Yearsley's ostensibly topographical poem, Clifton Hill, from 1786. So memory, tis a strain which fills my soul with sympathetic pain. Remembrance, hence, give thy vain struggles o'er, nor swell the line with forms that live no more. So this is another simultaneity of difficulty and desire, embodied and breathing. Here, Yearsley both literally and metaphorically connects poetry to nature as an interaction in one way, memories, personified struggles can injure the line of poetry acutely or chronically, the idea of the strain or injury of memory which fills or swells my soul with sympathetic pain like an edema where the body uh, has, has, fills up and rushes to respond to an injury by swelling up. Yearsley shows an awareness that natural responses don't necessarily lead to good poetry. She advocates for poetic control here for systems and principles. I think she's saying that it's okay to swell the line, but, not, but just not with dead forms, forms that live no more. But she may also be against swelling the line at all, asking rather for control or for a system or for the appearance of a system to please those critics and patrons worried about the implications of a laboring class woman's self-expression, her inspiration, her breathing in place in and on Clifton Hill. She's also equating strain with the hint of music as in a musical strain, something perhaps not entirely audible that, and that she needs to strain, as in removing or, or uh, moving something unwanted through a sieve, um, or strain, as in listening harder just to catch that tune that's not quite there. Or she may be thinking of restrain, as in holding back or holding at bay. She's also suggesting that there are other things for her to write about, but then what are we to make of the preceding 260 lines in this, in this poem? 
And I think one fundamental Martha Graham floor exercise that might be helpful to think about called breathings on two is designed, which is designed to be repeated four and a half times so that the dancer always ends the exercise on an inhale rather than an exhale. So Graham believes that this asymmetry affirms possibilities, affirms a, a future for the dancer to explore so that the dance does not end in a, a kind of death the breathing continues. So Clifton Hill, I think, can be read um, both as a place and as a poem, as a space for Yearsley to leave her options open. And literally, we might call this a breathing space. So I wrote on my script that it's time for us to take a breath. <sighs> okay. Um, the discussion of habitat and bioregion in 18th century British poetry is interesting from this breathing perspective. This view of the poem as breathing, gesturing towards, I think, a kind of new materialism's view, towards what I've already called an interaction or an action between. Uh, Rosie Berdotti's sense of orientation that the subject matter gives rise to the action itself that should or has the potential potential to engender us as opposed to the view uh, that it's an actual liminal space or the space in between that is the requisite radical space. So I see the interaction as a kind of push or an inhale which simultaneously precipitates an is movement which, uh, which potentially stretches one side of the conceptual gap to brush against or lick or otherwise sense the other side of the conceptual gap. Like how a breathing is never com completely full or completely empty. Or maybe what I'm talking about is more palimpsestual with its layers of rich permeability, that breathing through of multi-layered breathings. And I would think of diffused light or the work of the wind here. Or perhaps it's, it's akin to Deleuze and Guattari's idea of the environmental assemblage, the hiesity, where a unique moment, perhaps a breath, serves as a space in which a myriad of situated identity or situated entities are co-constituted, uh, as in the slow uh, permeation of Crabbe's notebook page or yearsly swelling line. In any event, if we go back to my paper, Breathing with Ian, I guess I would have to say for certain that Percy Bysshe Shelley's The Mask of Anarchy is now, for me, infused with breath, that experience of breathing, which the poem opened up, which the poem participated in, that multivocal interaction or layering or unique moment, which also opened the poem to further breathings or further readings. And so poetry becomes place-based as it is experienced supplementary to its already relationship to place. In Shelley's case, the Peterloo Massacre and his ideological and spiritual nearness to and physical distance from that place in his moments of breathing the poem and the process of the poem's breathing. That is also why I like very much Michael McGuinness's definition of bioregion as a region of nearness. When I first started to think about bioregionalism, 
the requisite definition from geography and environmental science of a region defined by its watershed territory or watershed footprint never seemed quite adequate for my purposes. I liked that that definition's erasure of nation-state drawn boundaries that the definition offered. Indeed, at that time, I was writing about the national horse of Canada and about how the idea of designating a national horse was fraught with challenges and that some of the most interesting ones were that horses do, do not respect boundaries and that exchanges of genetic materials are interactive and that human interventions in animal lives uh, gener uh, generate not only new economies but new synergies and new animal responses in the body. And the terms of the geographer's definition of bioregionalism bio didn't sit well with me in other important ways. Culture always seemed to be discussed as part of a future and a, a vision of place to come. And I didn't feel comfortable with how that definition was trickling into literary studies. For example, Cheryl Glatt-Felty's utopian literary bioregionalism defined as a reimagining what a bioregionally inspired local literary tradition could look like, as if such a tradition wasn't already, already there, deeply embedded in place. So McGuinness's region of nearness becomes for me a, a beautiful experience or, and a beautiful expression of an idea that constitutes place as accessible simultaneously on many different biological, geographical, cultural, political, and emotional levels. Place as a breathing and a, and a beating heart. Bioregion seen as a region of nearness admits itself to both the local and the global, historical and contemporary, political and personal, national and cultural, and it eliminates the advantages of power and real property in favor of, as McGuinness would have it, the privilege of the spatial and the emotional. This concept of the bioregion as a region of nearness also facilitates Gary Snyder's attentiveness to the intense labor of being in place. His certainty that living in place with respect to Peter Berg and Ray Daisman's key bioregional concepts, dwelling, sustainability, and reinhabitation, involves hard work, incorporating a moral and spiritual choice as well. When I start to think about the labor of place, I invariably start to think about poetry and the roles and the work of the poet in place. This is something that I have been thinking about quite a lot from several different perspectives, and I'll just tell you three, three main perspectives that I've been looking um, at this from, and I'll come back to those. So I've been thinking about the poet's role as a feral citizen, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. I've also been thinking about the poet and the genius loci, uh, as well as the poet as the, the genius of the place. So I'm going to turn now to some readings and, and think about um, what 18th century critics, in their desire to classify and impose systems thinking on literary genres, refer to uh, ironically, I think, in the context of my talk today, uh, they refer to them as species and subspecies of poetry. 
So I think this is kind of funny, and uh, I don't think that's a bad position to take in relation to anything to do with the 18th century, given the age's propensity for satire. So the classification of critics, um, or the classification by critics of species and subspecies of poetry may be satirical at one level, but it's also an acknowledgement of system and flow. And as such, for our purposes today, we can think about two subgenres that Yearsley and Crabbe address in their poems. So the first one is, um, and I think, yeah, the first one is topographical poetry, or I like to call it topopo, um, <laughs> uh, which is a spe- subspecies of descriptive poetry uh, taken here to mean depicting nature in general and aimed chiefly at describing specifically named actual localities. And the other term is local poetry, which is defined by Samuel Johnson as a species of composition of which the fundamental subject is some particular landscape to be poetically described with the addition of such embellishment as may be supplied by historical retrospection or incidental meditation. And I would say that what is really implicit in defining poetry as a species or subspecies is the idea of a system that laboring class poets like Yearsley and a regional poet like Crabbe are so ambivalently interpolated into. Perhaps that is why Clifton Hill so urgently grows out of bounds and begins, in terms of its perspective at least, to move away from the system called poetry and its designated species label as topographical poetry. So let's uh, think about this a little bit more. Um, We'll wait for that. Um, So my readings pin board, to go back to this conceptual idea of arranging an academic paper as a pin board, uh, prominently displays an excerpt from John Denham's uh, poem Cooper's Hill from 1634, perhaps the most famous uh, topographical or local descriptive poem in the English tradition. though he does have an Irish uh, lineage. I'm, I'm interested in this excerpt that I'll show you here um, because it describes the poetic ideal of Concordia discourse, an ancient concept from the Greek classical tradition and one which Earl uh, R. Wasserman calls the heart of the cosmic scheme from the Renaissance through to the early 18th century. So that may be interesting to talk about the great chain and the Concordia discourse. Um, Looking at this excerpt helps us see the significance and relevance of Concordia discourse for discussions of bioregionalism. It also helps us to move incrementally closer to Yearsley and Crabbe. And I could say that Concordia discourse also has something to do with the fractiverse, or that it's it's a learning surface for reading habitat and bioregionalism. So here's, uh, here's Denham. Um, wisely she knew the harmony of things as well as that of sounds from discord springs. Such was the discord which first did disperse, form, order, beauty throughout the universe. While dryness, moisture, coldness, heat resists all that we have and that we are subsists while the steep, horrid roughness of the wood strives with the gentle calmness of the flood. Such huge extremes when nature doth unite, wonder from thence results, from thence delight. 
For denim, nature and poetry are interactive, richly kinesthetic and embodying. The unity gained through the flowing oppositions in lines 235 and 236 are interrupted by medial pauses in the next two lines. And these pauses breathe the reader into an incremental and emotional trajectory supported by the intensely deliberate syntactical structure of the last line, which it, with its reversed noun positions of wonder and delight in the anaphoric rhetoric of the repeated from thence, from thence, and with the verb results kind of fulcruming the line. The, as well, the ambivalent delights shifts its shifts in potential from noun to verb or verb to noun. So we see that there's an awful lot of artifice involved in generating this description. And indeed, nature is used metaphorically here to collapse its richness and rightness, its orderly disorder, its Concordia discourse, directly into Charles I and the natural rightness of the royalist cause. And many of you already know how influential Cooper's Hill was on Alexander Pope, and especially and directly in Windsor Forest from 1713. And you also may know how the idea of of Concordia discourse, that harmony from discord springs and wonder from thence results from thence delights, as Denham puts it, is embedded not only in the construction of the couplet, but in the way that Pope discusses what he's trying to do in his poem. So in other words, in the tradition of the neoclassical or the updated version of the classical concept of Concordia discourse, it's not just a matter of content, it's also a matter of form and how poetry manages to render both living nature and the cultural memory of an idealized nature, in this case, Edenic. Never afraid of the artifice of poetry, nor afraid of asserting his ambition or his striving for, Pope talks about this very clearly uh, right near the beginning of Windsor Forest. So he says, the groves of Eden vanish now so long, live in description and look green in song. These were my breast inspired with equal flame, like them in beauty should be like in fame. Here hills and vales, the woodland and the plain, here earth and water seem to strive again, not chaos-like together crushed and bruised, but as the world harmoniously confused where order in variety we see, and where, though all things differ, all agree. So on the one hand, Concordia Discourse offers the perfect answer to chaos and even to the voluminous variety of things materially placed before us, its harmonious disorder. But Concordia Discourse as a cosmic scheme and where, though all things differ, all agree, as Pope puts it, has its downside for bioregionalism and an engagement with habitat. All of the agency is appropriated to the poet's court. And there's a creeping sense of artificiality in all of this where nature is perhaps not just commandeered for metaphor, it's also elided to the generic so that Pope can actually argue that this process of moving from nature to poetry is natural and that perhaps nature's aptitude, as he puts it, for turning the mind to thoughts and contemplations that have a relation to the object 
gently generates an ontology, a natural way of being human in nature that is fundamentally artificial. Here's how he describes this way of being in nature uh, in a critique of Dedham's Cooper's Hill. So Pope says the description of places and images raised by the poet are still tending to some hint or leading into some reflection upon moral life or political institution, much in the same manner as the real sight of such scenes and prospects is apt to give the mind a composed turn and incline it to thoughts and contemplations that have a relation to the object. So on the one hand, Concordia discourses as a concept is very appealing to bioregionalists interested in wholeness and watershed and balance and inclusivity. And it's a concept that gets the idea of habitat, of context, of messy nature, and tends less to valorizing heroic species out of their habitats and con contexts. But major questions arise for me in the habitat of this talk. How does form, the heroic couplet for example, and this poetic convention or neoclassical appropriation from the classical tradition, this Concordia discourse, how does this contribute to particular evocations of habitat, bioregions, and place, especially as I move us towards the end of the 18th century? And what does this have really to do with the poet as genius of the place? Well, I would say weirdly, perhaps, that it has something to do with breathing with Ian. It's about movement. Perhaps burbling is the word to use. It's a kind of watery movement. And there's geography popping up again to make itself useful. It's not quite flow, for as we see, neither Yearsley or Crab are radical formal innovators, but there is a little movement, which Martha Graham might call a contraction, contraction I'll see if I can do it, contraction or release, um, an inhale, which simultaneously precipitates an is movement, to quote myself from earlier in the paper, a breathing that generates fresh energy. So I'm going to turn now to talk about Anne Yearsley's region of nearness. So in turning to examine Anne Yearsley's contribution to the uh, topographical prospect local poetic species using her 1786 poem Clifton Hill, my system or methodology is to run the poem through those critical filters that I've already talked about or predetermined. And that is thinking about Yearsley as a feral citizen, Yearsley and the genius loci, and Yearsley as the genius loci. So assessing Yearsley as a feral citizen brings attention to what Donna Landry has called the laboring class woman poet's radical energy, especially as this energy serves to resist the co-optation of the laboring class woman poet into the literary marketplace as a novel commodity or in the vernacular of the period a natural genius. A feral citizen, as Nicholas Garside describes her, performs democratic social change by generating or exposing synergies within communities that work to accelerate or illuminate change appropriate for and reflective of the needs of that community. Sometimes a feral citizen is seen as a trickster figure in community practice. 
In the context of Clifton Hill, this means that Yearsley is attentive to the various tenants of this tangled wood who skulk all day. The real critical question here lies in the, ass- in, in the assessment of Yearsley's self-fashioning in adherence to the image projected onto her and from her by her influential patron, Hannah Moore. If Yearsley is able to display any of her radical energy in Clifton Hill, I suggest that some understanding of this can be released through an eco-critical approach. So thinking about Yearsley as Lactilla, which was a pastoral uh, persona or label that was initially projected from the outside onto her by Moore and Elizabeth Montague, but then taken up or taken on by Yearsley herself uh, and becoming a kind of self-description may, may be helpful here. There are some uh, several important lactilla moments, I'll call them, in Clifton Hill that ask for more attention from a bioregional perspective. And if I talk a little bit about uh, Yearsley's relationship to the genius loci and as genius of the place, um, I would suggest that one of the things I've written about in the past and something I always emphasize to my students when when we study the work of labor and class poets is the sometimes dangerous game these poets play with apology and abjection. And while the politics of patronage require the grateful poet to take an appropriately humble position in relation to the patron and sometimes express that apology in exaggerated terms or repeatedly, there's an inherent tension that lives in the poem, often in the form of irony, where at least the poet and the reader share some knowledge that the apologetic assertion of the poet's weakness relative to the patron is completely undercut by the existence of the poet's more than competent poem. Sometimes there's a degree of glee in this. So, uh, for example, Elizabeth Hans's pair of satirical poems from 1789, in which a group she depicts a group of gentry characters responding in, with astonishment to notices in the paper, first advertising and then announcing the publication of a book of poems by a servant maid with all this action recorded in poetry by a servant maid because Hans was a servant maid. But more often, and I think it's true in the case of Hans' pair of poems as well, there's a sad irony present in these laboring class poems. And uh, Donna Landry calls this uh, sadness uh, resignation. So I think that's something something to keep in mind. Such sadness also sits in Yearsley's Clifton Hill. Uh, As Donna Landry has noted, the poem begins in winter and records Yearsley's chilled soul um, and inactive, sprightly fires, violently uh, extrapolated with an image of a harsh and hardened winter, unsympathetically blasting flora, earth, birds, peasants, etc., culminating in images of Yearsley's projected milkwoman's self, half-sunk in snow, Lactilla shivering, tends her favorite cow. And a brutish hunter um, is involved also murdering beauteous redbreast, the beauteous redbreast. But there, there is a turn to place and a recognition of place that eludes the a- affectation to patron and specifically to Hannah Moore because she's mentioned in, in this poem. And, and also uh, turn to uh, 
the, the affectation to propriety. So Yearsley apostrophizes the Avon Gorge River Channel and figures commerce as an angel or a great bird bringing various treasure from either pole without reference to the vulgarity of colonialism's enslavement, uh, but very briefly. Even in the topographical mode of the prospect poem, Yearsley is much less attentive to the conventional view from the top. Rather, she guides the reader's eye closely downward, and we, specific, we see specifically listed and named spring flowers, uh, ruddy swain and milkmaids at ground level, unbound by high romantic rules of honor. Um, and when she does take the prospect view, it is to see the Clifton churchyard where her mother is buried. And rather than broaden to a panoramic view and say something about the nation, she retreats to memory and recalls for the reader a mother-daughter conversation in which the inevitability of death is figured. Similarly, though she asserts that the muse pursues her flight and breathes purer air on Vincent's rugged height, Yearsley uses her inspiration, her breath, not to soar or not to assert nobility or national symbols, but rather to describe the meal penurious nibbled by the sheep who subsist at this height, and then to reassure the sheep that she is co-constituted with them. So she says, ye bleeding innocence, dispel your fears. My woe-struck soul in all your trouble shares. Tis but yet lactilla, fly not from the green. Long have I shared with you this guiltless scene. In Clifton Hill, Yearsley literally re-inhabitates place, beginning with a sodden, harsh winter and ending 250-plus lines later, digging in with the sad tale of Louisa the Fair Maniac, an actual local woman, a homeless German refugee who had fled from an angry father, lived in a haystack, and was eventually uh, sent to an asylum, so she's a local character. Um, between the winter and Louisa, Yearsley pulls the reader's eye down, but not largely down from the prospect, uh, but rather to the earth, where she illuminates the teeming life at ground level and where she sees herself as a snail. Yearsley's diminishment of the prospect in favor of such an alternative view of habitat is interesting in several ways. So she demonstrates her understanding of the original designation of a bioregion as an inclusive watershed form, even as she diffuses a much more human-scaled prospect poem from the traditional prospect view by guiding the reader's eye elsewhere. In this way, the topographical poem and the local poem as poetic species are modified by Yearsley, who figures the landscape as oriented to her own sense of living in place and her own sense of the poetics of such a reorientation, based on Pope, undoubtedly. But if Yearsley borrows from Pope in many ways, it's ultimately impossible for her to sit comfortably with Pope's artifice of the poet's unnatural way of being human in nature. She simply has too much experience. She is, as Ralph Bileby and Thomas Buick would suggest, a judicious observer. Yet she still shuns the bolder day, identifying with the harmless, slow journeying, creeping, sucking snail. Hardly the ideal conceptualization of the feral citizen, some might say, 
Um, and I think that's the spirit in which this poem has often been read. But in my view, a bioregional and I think also an ecofeminist reading of Yearsley's Clifton Hill enacts a lateral critical move. Reading ecocritically helps us to read this poem in ways that acknowledge that Yearsley is situated bioregionally and that how she lives and works in her place and time as a local poet, as Lactilla half sunk in snow and shivering as she tends her favorite cow, is gendered female. A bioregional reading of Clifton Hill offers to disrupt the canonization of laboring class women writers through the lateral move of localizing their practices, putting them back in place without putting them in their place, to invite a respectful reading of their writing as placed rather than critically viewing them as displaced, as natural geniuses or autodidacts, as victims of their gender and class. Enabling this poem's space to do its work in place, to honor its rootedness in its specific bioregional place, is in the bioregional sense to be true to, or at least aware of, this poetry's uncultivated or undercultivated nature as true and real. Seeing the poem more wholly also makes it easier to recognize the domesticated domesticating impulses of our own discipline and how much of what we do as literary critics is all about systems and tidying things up. And this extends to interpolating the category poet into a smooth and consumable global commodity, which might suit Pope, but I, I, I have some issues with that. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit now about bioregionalism and the failure of representation. But can a poet actually say what she wants to say about place? Indeed, Pope's poetics of artifice may actually be an expression of all that he thought was actually achievable or possible or desirable in the interaction between language and landscape. So perhaps thinking about the the learning surface or juxtaposition uh, might be helpful here and push us into the concluding sections of this talk. So I'll talk a little bit about my own pin board again. So understandably, in the context of this paper, and not at all randomly, I have on my pinboard uh, a ticket stub from an autumn 2013 performance by the Canadian Opera Company on uh, what I would call my poet as genius of the place pinboard. It's not random because the opera in question was Peter Grimes by Benjamin Britten, first performed in 1945. Britten and George Crabbe were from the same town in Suffolk. In fact, Crabbe wrote the original poem, Peter Grimes. It's book 22 of the 24 books that make up the long poem, The Borough which he published in 1810, and I'll talk about it in a few minutes. I only mention this ticket stub uh, and going to the opera because of what Britton is recorded as saying after he first read Crabbe's poem in 1941. Britton was living in Los Angeles at the time, and he read an article about Crabbe by E.M. Forrester, who praised Crabbe for, among other things, his feeling for certain English types and certain kinds of English scenery. 
Britain was interested in the place-based connection between himself and Crabbe, read Crabbe's poetry, and is famously quoted as saying in response to Crabbe's work that I suddenly, I suddenly realized where I belonged and what I lacked. And eventually, Britain moved back to Aldborough, founded the well-known music festival there, which continues, and is a powerful part of the way that the bioregion defines itself today on a number of levels. Not the least of which is that if you know the storyline of Peter Grimes, then you know that it's not a pretty story. And how do you tell such a story about place in place, have that story become incredibly famous, and learn to live well with it? The fact that both Crabbe and Britton wrote this story of poverty, parochialism, and child abuse underlines its importance, or at least its resonance, for place and for this place. I'm sure there's still a great deal to say about the story and how it fits with the contemporary self-definitions of the local community and the bioregion in, in the context of both Crabs and Britain's work. And I'm interested in, in pursuing that. I was thinking of maybe actually going and interviewing some, inter, doing some interviewing. But I want to turn back to some of the more fundamental questions that we've been exploring here and talk just briefly about um, a section of the borough for a few minutes. Um, what I've already had to say about Crab earlier in the talk emphasized his systematic and experiential approach to his explorations in natural history. I'd also say that he qualifies as the kind of judicious observer we've already discussed with reference to Thomas Buick and Anne Yearsley. But Crabbe also picks up Pope's gauntlet in the, in the borough. Crabbe is a bit of a philosopher, and I have um, I grabbed a couple of short sections to, to illustrate this. So let's see. There it is. So... Uh, so this is uh, in letter one, the first part of the, the poem. Describe the borough. Though our idle tribe may love description, can we so describe that you shall fairly streets and buildings trace and all that gives distinction to a place? This cannot be, yet moved by your request, a part I paint. Let fancy form the rest. Cities and towns, the various haunts of men, require the pencil, they defy the pen. So what Crabbe really does for the reader of the borough is to simultaneously celebrate and problematize the whole issue of the poet in place. The feral citizen, the genius loci, the local poet as genius of the place, through a Concordia discord of clashing personal pronouns, our, we, you, your, I, along with the quoted conversational characterization of a demanding outsider who commands from the outset that the speaker describe the borough. Can we, the speaker responds, those local to a place, generate through description a place that will allow you, the stranger, to fairly trace not only streets and buildings, but all that gives distinction to a place? The speaker could be merely incredulous at this command, but he seems more serious, despite some hesitation, a sense that our idle tribe is always in search of a good story and that he, as local poet, is always pressed upon to take on such impossible commands. He says that he's moved by the request. 
moved is the requisite verb here because it captures the poet's layered engagement with the request. And it suggests that he intends to be moved by meeting the request at multiple levels, emotional, poetic, intellectual, and physical. After all, what else does a local poet do except respond, be moved, be put into service, into action, into motion by such requests? That is the role of the local poet, to go back to Johnson's definition of local poetry, of which the fundamental subject is some particular landscape to be poetically described with the addition of such embellishment as may be supplied by historical retrospection or incidental meditation. And Johnson liked Crabbe's poetry a lot. He famously revised Crabbe's 1783 poem, The Village, making suggested improvements to three lines and uh, commenting synergistically in a letter to Joshua Reynolds that the alterations which I have made I do not require him to adopt, for my lines are perhaps not often better than his own, but he may take mine and his own together and perhaps between them produce something better than either. But our idle tribe who may love description, often also refers to poets. And this takes us back to Pope, who asserts that it is the vocation of the fame-driven poet to describe the borough, but not primarily in terms of judicious observations of nature. Rather, it is his job to be inspired, to inhale, to ignite, to be like another poet. Pope sets his primary task apart from place, fixing that task as one of language. Crabbe's more modest speaker puts the entire issue in a different tenor, and I think in part helps us to better understand some big issues, such as the distinction between neoclassicism and romanticism, and the pale, layered delineations in between that are Crabbe's and Yearsley's and many others' contributions to British poetry of the 18th century. Crabbe also raises the issue of the impossibility of art, the role of the reader or listener, and the possibilities of change and adaptation in an age amenable to revision in, uh, in, in this, this cannot be yet moved by your request, apart I paint, let fancy form the rest. But this comparison between Pope and Crabbe also helps us to see the distinction in roles in the way that various poets understood themselves as poets, feral citizens, and as genius loci. Pope's life in a world of texts breathes an assuredness, a kind of poetic determinism, in which he asserts that literary practice literally makes the world. Contrast this with the, with the much more anxious crab who reveals at the end of the 18th century as fraught by the malleability of a world rocked by revolution, by the enormity of the task of the poet, and the diminishment of human endeavor in the face of the sublime and the beautiful. And don't forget that Crabbe's first patron was Edmund Burke. So look at what Crabbe says about the erstwhile poet. So he says, but yet proceed, and when thy tints are lost, fled in the shower, or crumbled by the frost, when all thy work is done away as clean as if thou never spreadst thy gray and green, 
Then mayst thou see how nature's work is done, how slowly true she lays her colors on, when her least speck upon the hardest flint has mark and form and is a living tint. And so embodied with the rock that few can the small germ upon the substance, uh, substance view. So, uh, so Crabb says here that the artist must try, must proceed, but that human art is short and ephemeral and ineffectual in comparison to nature's slow centuries command. He advocates this turn to the external world, implying through a speaker that understanding only comes with the experience of place, with judicious observation. Furthermore, he seems to suggest that we can only fleetingly bring our experience to place. Yet Crabbe urges that without the attempt, without art, nothing at all can be revealed. So the poet has his place here. Ultimately, there is only the layered, breathing experience of learning how to dwell in our regions of nearness. And with the attempt, Crabbe hopes for the poet that then mayst thou see how nature's work is done and how slowly true she lays her colors on. And what, and what of us? So I wrote two endings to this paper. So that's ending number one. And then I added on what I called a coda, which is um, just a, a kind of comment about um, uh, eco-criticism as an academic uh, practice. So I've, as I said at the beginning of the paper, I've always felt that eco-criticism should dare to be different. And in fact, I think it's necessary to be different if we hope to enact any kind of activist environmental practices, which I assume underlie all eco-critical endeavors. So alternative intellectual methodologies and systems have worked well in other anti-oppression movements, and I'm thinking particularly of feminism and anti-racism movements. But I think we forget this too often in eco-critical studies. We, we try to, to fit in. And I think that um, rather than shrink from labels like tree huggers or uh, labels that I think, are, at least in my earlier, uh, you know, when I started doing eco-criticism, I guess it's getting on to pretty close to 20 years ago, um, you know, hearing these labels thrown, thrown out at you. Um, I think those of us who like to wear shorts to conferences, although no one's doing that here, um, <laughs> and, um, and uh, pledge allegiance to the earth, as Joni Adamson puts it, perhaps we should consider the value of embracing these labels more actively and em embracing those trees, I suppose, and ask ourselves in what ways the university is also our region of nearness so that we can allow our work to breathe out of uh, out of that core value. And I think many of us are engaged in, in that kind of thinking and practice. So for me, eco-critical practice fully extends to our goals and methods for institutional, pedagogical, intellectual, and community-based practices. And I indeed, I think we have to do that for our institutions because they, too, are suffering deeply and... Um, and fundamentally uh, from the effects of, I guess we could describe it as a kind of environmental degradation. So I'm just going to leave it there, and, uh, and thank you very much for, for listening. Emma Curran from the University of Surrey acted as respondent.
And thank you, Anne, for that fantastic paper, which it is now my pleasure to spend a few moments reflecting upon. And I have some questions that are sort of embedded in, in, my, in my general um, comments and thoughts. Um, there is so much to, to consider in this exploration of what it means to situate poetry and indeed the poet themselves um, in, in their bioregion. And what came through to me most sharply for, from the paper is the importance to a proper appreciation of being part of a, of a bioregion, of a keen sense of being in the moment, in this time and this place, um, as fully cognizant as possible of what you speak of as the physical and emotional experience of existing among all that is near to one. Um, and I was, I was interested particularly in your argument that heightened awareness of that sort either achieved through a focus on the breath, as your paper frequently touched upon, um, or by taking notice of the reality of being in the body within its environment in, in other ways, um, facilitates a greater knowledge, perhaps an instinctual knowledge, of the systems that we're operating on uh, on multiple levels. Um, I was struck by your suggestion that if we can be mindful of something as essential as our respiratory systems at first, um, we can then more readily recognise the life cycles near to and engaged with our own. And what's appealing to a literary research student about this kernel of thought in your paper is that we can begin to feel that literary expression lends itself peculiarly well um, to capturing spells of this kind of sharpened awareness. Um, what Wordsworth would know of as spots of time or Virginia Woolf would call moments of being, those jolts of existence, um, which are very much rooted to place, um, experienced at key locations at the lakes in Wordsworth's prelude, or by the coast or in the capital, as chronicled in Virginia Woolf's The Waves. I immediately then start thinking of um, parts of the canon to want to explore anew um, in, in light of this that, that suggest themselves. And I suppose my first question then is, is to wonder aloud what other directions this kind of mindful listening in, in um, the context of an eco-critical new materialism um, might offer to, to literary analysts. Uh, much of the fascination of the paper for me centred around those quite fraught questions of how far nature poetry, or topopo, have I said that right, <laughs> um, gives life to the experience of being in place, um, or how it often falls short of that, and, and reminded us that the distance established by the act of writing about being in place becomes problematic for the eco-critic. We heard about the different degrees of removal from that original moment of a poet's being in place, the limited efficacy of description to transfer that experience to another, um, or the tendency to nostalgia in poetry creating Edenic spaces, um, or the unnatural human way of being in nature that Pope identifies through that habit of automatic intellectualising. These all represent steps back from the place and time of original observation and inspiration uh, founding a topological poem, and I'd like to linger over that idea for a short while and throw in another couple of examples of various sort of degrees of removal. Um, the first of those has a little bit of a tangential preamble, but bear with me. Um, I attended a really interesting talk a few years ago at a literary festival that stuck in my thoughts and which I'm put in mind of hearing this paper once again. Um, Lyndall Gordon was talking about Emily Dickinson's relation to Amherst and her poetic imaginings of Britain and a literary geographer spoke about poets in place 
And a contemporary poet read from her work and reflected on her creative practice. And the talk ended with a shared reflection that from all of their perspectives, the three speakers identified a common occurrence of the fact that while a poet will gather their verse from a walk in a wild place, um, there's often this process of returning home to write that up, away from the topography of the poem and after the period of, of being among it. And I'm not sure I agreed wholesale, either then or now, that this is necessarily so sometimes poetic composition can be done in situ um, and there are ways in which spaces bequeath words as they're triggered by that sense experience of surroundings um, but and your discussion of the breath work at play in a poem like The Mask of Anarchy or Cooper's Hill um, described as a, as a kind of bridge for the reader to follow through into Shelley's lived experience of Peterloo or Denham's experience of Cooper Hill um, suggests that topolog- topological poetry can capture much of the immediacy mm-hmm. of being in place. But there is still something in this retreat from natural space to writing space mm-hmm. that allows um, for other systems to interpose with yet more of that kind of artifice um, that you raised in your discussion of Pope Um, and then the physicality of another environment often a house must somehow come into play during the process of building a poem a literal structure then becomes an influence at the same time as formal structure Um, and you flagged up the the, the gendering of the experience of being in nature. And I can't help wondering in what ways this movement between natural space and domestic space um, is, is further complicated by questions of gender and class, um, questions of readoption of roles within a house, or questions of ownership of different places and different ways of belonging. Um, and perhaps these are things that the next panel, um, interrogating the intersection of the domestic and the natural, will pick up on further. Um, I liked very much your concept of the feral citizen. Um, it's, it's Nicholas Garside. Oh, it's Nicholas. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful idea, and I, I wonder if this is a, an identity which lends itself well to a kind of flitting, to use a John Clare-like um, phrase between different places that you may or may not own um, or belong to in different ways. Um, so I wanted to ask if this little but perhaps significant degree of removal of coming back home um, to write might be incorporated into an understanding of the nature poet's being the genius of the place that they write of. Um, and I'd also be interested to hear more about the particular challenges facing literary historians in attempting to breach that rather larger gulf between one's own position in time and a poem's original embeddedness in all that was near to it in its own moment um, within its original environment. And we heard um, in three papers this morning the intricate work of unweaving and understanding conceptions of nature, such as the Enlightenment um, model of the Great Chain or mining what Fergal called um, the storehouse of ecological wisdom of other cultures. Um, And I I found your suggestion of focusing on the breath uh, of the poem to connect to a poet's first reaction to a place fascinating. Um, And I wonder if you could say a little more about ways in which literary historians can find like approaches to a mindful listening across centuries. Yeah, just to maybe start with the personal, um, one of the things that I... I just noticed this morning when I was having breakfast was that um, the, I'm at the hotel they uh, they serve you coffee and then they ask you to go to the buffet and help yourself to whatever you want to eat and um, 
when I come when I came back to the table, and this has been my experience for the last few days, uh, I immediately rearrange everything on the table because I'm left-handed, and um, the table is set up for right-handed people. And this has been an, this has been an experience that I've had obviously throughout my life, um, where I'm always rearranging things spatially. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in these these this idea of the body and place, um, in, in part at least, because I'm I'm always thinking about it. I'm always reaching for the wrong side of the door. I'm always turning the knob the wrong way. I'm always you know doing doing things things in spatially in the in a kind of opposite way so I have to be very mindful about how I move in in space and then I think my experience with dance also is really fundamental to this this project and I'm trying to integrate that increasingly in in my work um, the I, I really want to probably want to talk the most about uh, this idea of where do you write the poem, and I think that this is particularly interesting in the case of labor and class poets because of their situation as laborers, because they um, they didn't have the leisure to to write in the same way that a gentleman poet would would have the leisure to write and so they report in there's several famous cases where the the laboring class poet has reported that they record the poem in their head while they work and then go home and write it down um, in often palimpsestual ways because they don't have a lot of paper, so they write in that famous, you know, for, uh, horizontally and then vertically on the page, using up all this possible space. So there's, a, you know, really interesting, I think, a really interesting different angle on that whole idea of carrying the poem home with you and um, and writing it out. And I think that leads into the question of gender so that women women work the double day so that the space of home is a is a workplace as well as a home place. And uh, so their experience of coming home and writing is, a, I think, quite a different experience than uh, the experience of the even the laboring class male poet who um, who works perhaps threshing or in some other uh, labor all all day and probably extended in the summer to all hours of daylight um, come still comes home at the end of the day and doesn't begin working immediately again so so I think that that the gendering question is also uh, really really interesting um, in terms of the feral citizen that's it's a concept that I've been working with quite a bit and thinking about how um, you know what I don't. I don't really. I'm not really attracted to the notion of um, of the power of the power of marginalization that I think has been talked about in the past in in reference to post-colonial uh, cr criticism. So I find the feral citizen is is a figure who is in the center and um, troubling the the center rather than. Uh, in the periphery, troubling from the periphery. So I, f I find it a more useful concept for thinking about how 
who troubles and how do they how do they trouble so I think that's how I've been using that um, and um, the the problems for literary historians well this is actually really interesting for me because as a Canadian um, who works on British poetry um, as soon as I come to England, my all my research projects change, and it, it definitely has to do with place and being in in place. And I start to understand things in ways that I've never understood them before. Um, and it doesn't; it's not necessarily to do with what I've found in the archive per se. It's to, it's an embodied experience. So I was recently in Norwich doing some archival research and but one of the things that I found really interesting about being there was just just to see the spatial layout of the of the city and to understand that the poet that I'm working on lived in this kind of circular marketplace oriented spatial uh, geographical and urban setting. So I think that, that that was really super helpful. And I guess I would say in terms of um, dealing also with those kinds of problems and integrating the body and the breath, um, one of the things I found very success has worked very successfully in the classroom is um, having students um, memorize and recite poetry as part of an assignment and that's one of the things that they struggle with the most is the breathing of the recitation and overcoming nervousness because breathing and nervousness are very very connected so learning even just learning to breathe um, and I've also been experimenting with walking a lot in the in, in my classes and having students take take us on a walk and talk about the poem that they're they're talking about in a in a kind of embodied uh, practice. So I would say I don't know if that's addressing any of your that's questions, but. <laughs>